Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, let me invite you once again to turn to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Christian scriptures, so foundational for understanding, uh, living the Christian life. And we're continuing this chapter by chapter and verse by verse exposition as we come to Genesis chapter seven, Genesis chapter seven. And so let me invite you as you're able Let's stand together in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's word. We're going to be looking today at the entirety of this chapter, and so I hope you'll keep your Bibles open. But at this point, I'm just going to read the opening six verses. Genesis 7, verses 1 through 6, wherein Moses faithfully records... And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female, of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. May God bless today again the reading and the hearing of his word. And let us join in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks once more for the word uh, written. It is indeed a light, a light uh, shining in darkness And so, O God, by thy light, uh, allow us today to see light, allow us to see truth, allow us to see Christ more clearly and draw us closer unto thyself. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well, again, we are continuing this ongoing exposition through the book of Genesis, this first book of the Christian scriptures. And we have seen that God made the world very good in the space of six days and he rested on the seventh day. That's told us in Genesis one and two. Man was made as the crown of creation, stamped with God's image, made in his likeness. But then in Genesis three, we saw the fall. Man fell into sin by eating the forbidden fruit, by sinning against God. And this began a downward spiral. Cain rose up and slew his brother Abel. Lamech, we're told in Genesis 4.19, took two wives unto himself against the command, the pattern that God had given in Genesis 2.24. In the end, we're told in Genesis 6, 5, that God saw that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only 
evil continually. We call this total depravity. The, the real problem of sin in man's heart. And we call it the fall because man isn't now what he used to be. And man will continue to fall downward if, if it is not for the gracious hand of God. Imagine standing by a well, a dark well, and you, and you toss a stone into the well. And you see the stone drop and it drops out of your sight. And you listen to hear the sound of it hitting the bottom, uh, hitting something at the bottom, and you, you hear it falling, but you never hear it, the sound of it hitting the bottom. Well, we might imagine that that's what it's like with man's sin. Man fell further and deeper into sin with no end to that fall in sight. Things had gotten so twisted and so confused at the time of Noah that God determined to bring down his just judgment upon man and all creatures and even all the earth. And we read about this last time in Genesis 6, verse 7. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. And God even said at the end of verse 7, For it repenteth me that I have made them. God was grieved, so grieved by the sin of man, by the fall of man. And likewise, in Genesis 6.13, God spoke to Noah and said, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so the Lord justly, wasn't an injustice, the Lord justly decided uh, to destroy the earth and the the inhabitants thereof. And we also saw in Genesis uh, chapter 6 last time that God revealed, however, to Noah the means by which he would bring about this destruction If you look at verse 17 of Genesis 6, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And so God determined the means that he would use for bringing about this destruction would be a flood, an unprecedented cataclysmic event. And I noted that the Greek word in the New Testament for flood is cataclysmos, a cataclysm. God would have been just at that point to have wiped clean the slate. Have you ever been at a point in your life where things maybe got so messed up that you wish you could just wipe the slate clean? Well, if we could make a dim analogy, God at this point decided he was going to wipe the slate clean. And yet... We also read, did we not, that God in his mercy looked down upon one righteous man and for the sake of one righteous man, he determined to save a remnant. We see it there in chapter 6, verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God told Noah, we read that in chapter 6 and and beginning with the command in verse 14, make thee an ark of gopher wood. God commanded Noah to build an ark and through that ark, 
there would be preserved a remnant of both mankind and of animals. Now we turn to Genesis 7. And we begin to read the description of this great flood that came as a means or instrument of God's just, totally just judgment of the earth and also his inexplicable decision to preserve one man and his household, Noah and his wife and Noah's three sons and their wives. The coming of the flood is a reminder, another reminder of the consequences of sin. We saw the consequences of sin in Genesis 3 that that Adam and Eve would experience death, that they would be cursed, that the woman would have pain in childbirth, that they would had to be moved outside of Eden. And we saw that the other consequences that came, came within their household, with Cain rising up to strike down Abel and so forth. And the flood is yet another example of the consequences of sin. Before we move on to Genesis 7 and its description of the flood, I want to pause though for a minute and I want to consider uh, an issue that's related to the flood and almost always comes up when Christians talk about the flood and that is the historicity of it, the historical reliability of it. And this is important to consider because many skeptics have arisen in our day to question not only the historicity or the historical reliability of the Bible's account of creation, that God made the world in the space of six days and all very good, but also the historicity of later events like the flood of Noah's day. Of course, we often say to people who doubt the, the Bible's creation account, once you posit a God who is all-powerful, who is sovereign, then you have no problem once you, you accept that with accepting a God who can do as He pleases, who can work miracles, work things that aren't ordinary. That's what a miracle is. It's the extraordinary. And yet still, there are those who have arisen who have said the flood, this, this couldn't have happened, this wasn't historical. Some have suggested it's a mythical story a story with some metaphorical or spiritual meaning, but no literal or historical meaning. The liberal theologians and sometimes the liberal pastors, especially in mainline Protestant churches, will stand in the pulpit and they will try to console the alarmed believer by assuring them that the truth of the story is more important than the truth of the story. Years ago, I actually heard uh, a man, a liberal minister, say that very thing when he was preaching through the story of Jonah and the great fish. He was denying the historicity of that event. And he said, the truth of the story is more important than the truth of the story. And what he meant by that was that the spiritual truth in it was more important than the literal truth. And we who are traditional believers say, friend, you need not give up either one. We can affirm both the spiritual truth and the literal and the historical truth of the things that are described in God's Word. One commentator I read noted that such skeptics like to suggest that belief 
in the historicity of the flood that it really happened is naive and unscholarly. They ask, how could it be possible for a universal flood to cover the earth? How could Noah have ever built such a structure as the ark? How could all the animals fit in the ark? How could enough food be stored for such a long time and for so many animals? These are the types of objections that sometimes are raised. I remember when our family took a trip out west several years ago, and we got to see some of the vast scenes that you see in the western part of our country that you don't see here in the east. And we went uh, to Yellowstone National Park, and we saw the amazing hot springs and the, the middle uh, mineral-laden pools and all the colors and, and things you see there. And then we went down and we went into Arizona and we went to the Grand Canyon and we saw those great wide uh, gaping landscapes. And, and at both of those places and other places that we visited, there were always in the visitor centers and the guides always... Uh, the, the people giving us the party line, modern scientific explanations of how all of this had come about hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions of years ago. And all the while, as believers, we were thinking in the back of our minds, well, all these natural phenomena might just as well be considered in light of a cataclysmic universal flood in the days of Noah as described in the scriptures. In Romans 1.18, the Apostle Paul speaks of all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I think certainly in our day, uh, we've become much more skeptical of those who say, trust the science, haven't we? But sometimes those who say that don't know what they're talking about or attempting to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. When it comes to the flood, another line of attacks against the historicity, historical reliability of the Genesis account, has been to point to the so-called flood narratives that were told in other ancient societies. Maybe you're familiar with a document that's known as the Epic of Gilgamesh that was discovered in Mesopotamia, which is a flood story, an ancient Near Eastern flood story from a pagan culture. It has been said that nearly every culture throughout the world, from Egyptians to Aboriginal Australians to the Indians of North America, have flood stories. The ancient Jews, the skeptics tell us, just borrowed these myths from their neighbors or invented them themselves. But they overlook a much more obvious, significant, and salient lesson from all these stories. That is, flood stories are universal in cultures all over the world because there was an actual flood in the days of Noah. But only Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, definitively wrote about it. And the other accounts are misguided accounts of 
the actual historical reality. Why do we believe there was an actual historical flood? We believe it because it is in the scriptures. And the scriptures are not fairy tales. The Bible does not commence with once upon a time. But it starts in the beginning. It commences with history. And it was always received as such, as truthful historical narrative by God's people. We believe in it as history because this is the way the Lord Jesus Christ received it. And this is the way the apostles received it. With respect to Christ, consider, for example, his teaching about his glorious second coming that he gave on the Mount of Olives before he would go to the cross. There's a record of this in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36, where Christ said of his second coming, but of that day and hour knoweth no man. So we shouldn't speculate about when Christ is going to come. That's not for us to know. Our, our job is to live faithful lives, <coughs> knowing that it's in God's hands. But the Lord went on to say, he said, verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. See, Christ drew a parallel between the rapidity and the surprise and the power of the second coming and what happened in the days of Noah when the flood came. And he accepts Noah and the flood as a real event. He doesn't say, remember that metaphor, that spiritual metaphor that we used to tell? No, he accepts it as a historical event. The man who rejects the historicity of Noah and the flood might just as well reject the historicity of the life of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and the historicity of his glorious second coming. Consider also the apostle Peter, who wrote in 1 Peter 3.20 of the long suffering of God, who waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved. How did Peter take the flood? He took it as a historical reality. Likewise, in 2 Peter 2.5, Peter writes, God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Notice he doesn't say, you know, it's the flood is kind of like a metaphor and it's like a symbol of things. No, he speaks of it as a historical reality. So we believe in the historicity of the flood because it's in the scriptures, because this is the way Christ understood it, because this is the way the, the apostles understood it. And one of the things we, we have to be clear about, part of being a believer is accepting the reliability and the historicity and the authority of scripture. If we don't get that right, we will forfeit everything else. We must accept the 
historicity, reliability, and authority of Scripture. Well, that's a long introduction. Let's get to the text. Let's look at the text. There's time to do it. We're going to look at at, at Genesis 7, and we're going to look at this account now as it begins of the flood. We can divide our passage into three parts, as did the old authorized version translators. The three parts are first, verses 1 through 6, where there is the summons that is given by God to Noah and his household to enter the ark. The second part is verses 7 through 10, which describes the actual entry into the ark. And then the third, the climactic and the longest part, is verses 11 through 24, which describes the flood itself. And so let's start with the first part, verses 1 through 6, which is the summons to enter the ark. It begins in verse 1. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. God gives a command. Come thou and all thy house into the ark. This is what we could call the effectual call to physical salvation from the flood. By entering the ark. To our Presbyterian friends who would note that he calls for Noah and his household to enter the ark. We would respectfully suggest that this was a an event of physical salvation from the flood and does not have a one-to-one parallel to spiritual salvation wherein each person must hear that call and respond in faith. That is, we can't be saved spiritually by our parents' faithfulness or obedience. Notice also in verse 1 the emphasis upon the fact that the Lord recognized the righteousness of Noah. And again, we talked about this last time, didn't we? If you look back at chapter 6, verse 9. Noah was a just man. He was a perfect man in his generation. He walked with God as Enoch did. And so the Lord acknowledged that. And then Noah's given instructions for bringing in the animals of every clean beast. Verse 2, thou shalt take to thee by sevens the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. And now we have an expansion of the provisional instructions that were given in chapter 6. And there's a recognition here of clean animals and unclean animals. Now, this will not be clearly given to the people of Israel until later. We will see this in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 11. But even at this point, uh, the Lord is making a distinction here, even before the giving of the law, between clean and unclean animals. And one of the things we, we notice is that he says of the clean beasts, he was to take them in sevens. That is probably... Uh, uh, seven pairs of 14 actual animals, but seven pairs, male and female, and of the unclean, simply one pair or two, male and female. Why uh, is there a special mention of the seven? They were not, uh, more of these clean animals were not put on in order to be eaten because the command to eat of the flesh of animals doesn't come till after the flood in Genesis 9.3. But these clean animals were most likely provided for the purposes of sacrifice or worship of God. And that's clear, made clear to us if we look ahead in chapter 8 and verse 20. 
where it says, And Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And so uh, the provision of these extra clean animals was, was to provide for worship, was to provide for uh, the, the worship of God. We can notice again here the stress in verse 2 on the basic binary nature of the creation, male and female. In the beginning of verse 3, there's a mention also of the fowl of the air. They're noted as part of the sacrifice, the clean fowl in Genesis 8.20. He says of the fowl also of the air by sevens, the male and female, to keep seed alive upon the face of the earth. And that last little statement there at the end of verse 3 is a reminder that Whereas the flood will be a death and destruction dealing event, Noah has been set upon a life saving and a life preserving and life affirming mission. Just as God had told him in chapter six, there at the end of verse 20, that he he was to bring in these animals to keep them alive. Similarly, He says he's to do this to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. Noah had a life affirming, a life preserving mission. And if we could just make one little application, so do we. This is why we are in this sin tossed, sin wrecked world. We have a life preserving, life affirming mission to save men from destruction. That was Noah's task as well. And then we read in verse 4 of uh, the Lord announcing basically a seven-day cushion before he brings the flood. Look at verse 4. For yet seven days I will cause it to rain upon the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. Presumably, Noah has seven days, one week to make the final preparations. And on the seventh day, he will enter the ark and rest. Mention is made of rain. And apparently, up to this point, it had not rained ever upon the earth. In Genesis 2.5, it says, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. The God is going to bring rain, and we're told it's going to be for 40 days and 40 nights. And of course, this is literally a biblical proportion of time. And this is our first reference to this proportion of time. And as we'll look forward and through the Bible, we'll see that that there will be various other times to come where sometimes this this idea of a period of 40 days or sometimes 40 years is in the Bible a time of testing, uh, a time of proving. So, for example, the Israelites will wander for 40 years in the wilderness. Goliath will taunt Israel for 40 days before he battles with David, 1 Samuel 17, 16. This extends even into the New Testament when Christ goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan before launching his public ministry. We read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, that he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. God is going to bring about a time of judgment and a time of testing. And we look at the second half of verse four, it says, and every living substance that I have made, will I destroy from off the face of the earth? 
Total destruction will come in the flood for those outside the ark. And then we read in verse 5, And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And this is another mark, an indicator of the obedience, the faithfulness of Noah. We saw this already, didn't we, at the end of chapter 6, verse 22. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so he did. In teaching on parenting, we have often heard it said that even delayed obedience is disobedience. Noah presumably acted in obedience immediately, thoroughly, and cheerfully, joyfully. In verse 6, we read that Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And if you, if you look back to the end of chapter 5, you see in verse 32 of chapter 5, Genesis 5, that Noah was 500 years old when he uh, had begotten his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So 100 years have passed since, since that time. And we might imagine that God had been seasoning or preparing Noah before the time of the trial of the flood. He gave him a hundred years to be prepared. The Lord keeps his servants in training till just the time when they are needed. And so if you're in a period of your life where it feels like you're thinking, what am I doing of any significance? What am I doing that's important here? It may be the Lord just has you in a season of preparation a season of waiting, a season of training. He gave Noah 100 years after he had become a father before he took on the task of, of, uh, we might say, preserving uh, all life upon the earth. And God was preparing him for a task. The second part of our passage is verses 7 through 10. If verses 1 through 6 is the summons to enter the ark, Verses 7 through 10 is a description of the entry itself into the ark. And everyone knows in the Old Testament, Jewish literature has a lot of repetition. And that's good because I'm pretty thick of skull and pretty simple. And sometimes I need to hear things many times over and told in different ways. And, and so Moses is faithful to do that for us. In verse 7, we read, And Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Righteous and obedient Noah entered at the end of that seven-day period with his family into the ark. And in verses 8 and 9, we read of how the animals, clean and unclean, also entered two by two in pairs, just as they had been instructed. Verse 8, of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. There went in two and two unto the ark, uh, unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. So they went in by pairs, whether it was seven pairs of the clean animals and the fowl, or whether it was just a single pair for just regenerative purposes of the unclean animals. They came in two and two, just as God had commanded. And notice, by the way, that last statement in verse 9. As God had commanded Noah. What a signpost to put 
over Noah's life. As God had commanded Noah. Let me ask. Could such a signpost be put over my life? Over your life? Over the life of our church? Would it be said of us that we had done as God had commanded us? Well, that's what was said of of righteous Noah. In verse 10, then we read, And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. And that's an interesting verse because it tells us it's a reminder of the faithfulness of God. God always keeps his word. He said, I'll give I'll give seven days. Verse four, he had said that seven days and then the seven days come to an end and God does exactly what he promised. He always does exactly what he says. We can trust him always to fulfill his decrees because nothing and no one can thwart his will And we can compare his faithfulness here to every other promise that he has given us. When we are told that we will repent of our sin and trust in Christ, we will have everlasting life, eternal life. Do you think we can trust the promise of God? Has he ever spoken a falsehood? Has he ever broken his word? No, he's not. This is yet one more example of that. The third part of our passage the climax and the major part of it is the description of the flood itself. So we had the summons to enter the ark, the entry itself, and now we have a description, an inspired description of the flood. Notice it begins in verse 11 with a very specific sort of time signature for when this took place. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, The same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. The specificity of the mention of the time, the time signature is a reminder to us that God has a perfect timing for all things. He doesn't do things by happenstance. He doesn't make things up on the fly. Some of us are like that. We procrastinate and we have to do things late and we don't meet our deadlines. I never do that. Uh, But the Lord has a perfect timing and he does everything exactly when he has decreed. And he had a specific time when he brought this about. There's a reference here to the fountains of the deep being broken up and also to the windows of heaven being opened. We talked a little bit about this last time. And that the flood was not an ordinary type of flood. It's not the type of flood that we see and experience today in places like our terrain where there are mountains and gullies and overflows of rivers. This was a cataclysmic event because there was at at creation, as we're told in Genesis 1-7, there was the firmament that divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters that were above the firmament. There was the world was cosmologically different at the time of the flood. And God allowed something to happen that was unprecedented. And that is the, the there was the breaking up of 
these, these great stores of water, the fountains of the great deep, and the windows of heaven were opened. We can't understand it now. It's, it's, a, it's an event that has passed us by. It can't be observed and understood now as it happened then. In Proverbs 8, verse 28, Solomon speaks of this. He speaks of the fact that the Lord established the clouds above when he strengthened the fountains of the deep. To this was added by Moses a note of the 40 days and nights of rain that thickened things. And this rain might well be that which rained down from the windows of heaven as they were opened. Verse 12, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And then there is uh, given to us, particularly starting in verse 13, a sort of a rehearsal. Again, Hebrew narrative under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit loves repetition. And lest, lest we have any anxiety at this point about any hint of frustration of God's plan, Moses reminds us again of the fulfillment of his temporal plan of salvation by means of the ark. And he reminds us in verse 13, telling us in, in verse 13, in the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his son with them into the ark. And so there were eight souls in all of humanity that were preserved a remnant. And with them in verse 14, the beasts, verse 14, they and every beast after his kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. There was a total, meticulous, complete preservation of the animals, the beasts. And they did this by twos. Look at verse 15. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And think about it, that was true of human beings too. Noah and his wife, Ham, Shem, and Japheth and their wives. There were, there, were, there were these pairs that were brought into uh, the safe harbor, the safe passage of the ark. We notice also at the end of verse 15 that of the human beings in particular who were preserved, that we're in them is the breath of life. And I think this is a, a sort of a, a little note that reminds us of the special nature of the human beings who were being preserved. That they had within them the breath of life. They had within them a breath of life that had been given to them by God. We can think back, remember in Genesis 2 verse 7, God created the first man and he formed him of, of the dust of the ground and breathed life into him, animated him. And... Uh, now there's a notice of God's preservation of these ones who have within them the breath of life that God had given. Verse 16, And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him. Another little signpost of the faithfulness of Noah. As God had commanded him. Will you think for just one second to yourself, uh, I'm not asking for a public statement back. This is a rhetorical question. What stands before you right now as an area of obedience? Is there some area in your life you're struggling with obeying God's command? 
God's call, the Scriptures. Would you consider what it might be like if there could be written over your life that you had done as God had commanded you over whatever that area is? Maybe today you might commit whatever that area is and say, I will do as God has commanded me. After the following after the the model even of Noah. And then we're told at the end of verse 16, and the Lord shut him in. Remember the description of the ark that we had in Genesis 6, that it had but one door, Genesis 6, 16. And the door singular of the ark shall thou set in the side thereof. There was but one door. And now we read that the Lord shut him in. Noah did not put himself in the ark. He did not shut himself in. God did it. The door was not closed from the inside, but from the outside. This declares God's sovereignty over this means of chastisement. We'll come back to that statement at the end. For now, though, let's look at the description of the flood. Look at verse 17. And the flood was 40 days upon the earth. And the waters increased and bare up the ark. And it was lifted above the earth. Noah proved to be a competent shipbuilder. Though he had never built a ship before, most likely. What was the success of the ark? He had been given the blueprint by God. In verse 18, there's a stress on the extent and the magnitude of the flood. As it tells us in the waters, verse 18, prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark went upon the face of the waters. The water prevailed. And there's really, again, nothing we could compare this to. It's literally an incomparable, extraordinary and unrepeatable event. That the waters prevailed. Uh, they, were, they increased greatly on the earth. In verse 19, we read that it covered the high hills under the whole heaven. Verse 19, and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. And all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. In verse 20, it tells us the extent of this. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. Fifteen cubits would be, I think, about 22 and a half feet of water. The world's highest peak today is considered to be Mount Everest in Tibet, standing at over 29,000 feet in height. Well, if it was there in the same the form as we find it today, you can add another 15 cubits to that. And it was underwater. Everything was swallowed up with water. Again, this was not a small flash flood, but a cataclysm. No one and nothing would have been saved if God had not made provision. The flood brought about the death and the destruction that the Lord had intended. He always keeps his word. Verse 21, and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of the fowl and of the cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And then listen to the last line, and every man. Every human being outside of those eight souls on the ark. 
Their lives were taken away unexpectedly. Destruction was massive and the breath of life was taken from those outside the ark. It says of every man, those every man, every man who died in verse 22, all in whose nostril was the breath of life. Of all that was in the dry land died. And we read further about uh, this destruction, which was massive and total in verse 23. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping thing and the fowl of the heaven. The birds had no place to land. They too succumbed, save for those that were, that were kept within the ark. And they were destroyed from the earth, it says in verse 23. But then look at the end of verse 23. It tells us that inside the ark, however, what a contrast. There was life. Look at verse 23. And Noah only remained alive. And they that were with him in the ark. The stress there in the beginning on Noah. And Noah only remained alive is a reminder of the the peculiar role that that God had for Noah as the leader, as the head of his family, as a representative man. And here we have an echo of what will be later called by theologians federal theology or covenant theology, that Noah was a representative man the way Adam had been. Adam had fallen and we fell with him. In Noah, though, All mankind was preserved, including his wife and his own sons and their wives. We've heard about the physical magnitude of the flood, how it covered up all the hills. In verse 24, then, the final verse of this chapter, we also read of the temporal magnitude of it. And the waters prevailed upon the earth an hundred and fifty days. And so this massive... Massive amount of water remained over the highest hills for 150 days. Well, friends, we have worked through the passage. We have looked at the flood. Maybe some of you, it's been a long time. Maybe you, maybe some of you have never read through this. I don't know. For some of you, maybe it felt like a children's story. You heard in a children's story Bible or in Sunday school when you were young. But now we've looked at it again more soberly. Now, maybe from a more mature perspective. What are the spiritual lessons we might draw out from this text? I think most likely the Spirit's help. You've already connected some and we've alluded to some. But let me let me see if I can point to a few spiritual lessons we might take from this text. First of all, we learn again that sin has consequences. Eventually, our sin will find us out. We can't think that we can live as we please and that God is not watching. He's not observing. Sin has consequences. We also learn that God is just and that God is right to punish sinners with death and destruction. God was not unjust in the days of Noah. He would have been just to have wiped the entire slate clean. He did nothing unjust here. We also learn 
from this text that God does exactly what he promises. He said he would destroy the world and do it by a flood, and he did it. He said he would wait seven days, and then he would bring it about, and he did. He is a God who keeps his word. Do you trust him to keep his word for the other things that he says in the scriptures? He promises in the scriptures that he will honor those who honor him. And he will put to shame those who deny him. Do you believe that? Do you believe he will keep that promise? Christ said this in Matthew 10 when he's speaking to his apostles. He said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father in heaven. Do you believe that? Do you believe he will keep his promises there? He will be faithful to do what he said. We see also in this passage the importance of obedience modeled again by Noah. Obedience that is prompt, full, cheerful, joyful. And perhaps most importantly, we also see here our Lord's great patience and long-suffering. Do you remember if you look back at Genesis 6 and verse 3, we talked about this when we were preaching through this, how he had given 120 years for mankind. 120 years. He was patient. Yet his days shall be 120 years. Not talking about the, the lifespan of a man, but 120 years he gave. Time that, where there could have been repentance. He, he did not immediately. He doesn't, he, he, he doesn't act on a hair trigger. Some of us are like that. We make rash decisions. God never makes a rash decision. He's long-suffering. He is patient. He was with the whole earth. Even when he set apart his plan, he gave yet seven days more. That's the kind of God he is. You've got 120 years. I'll give you seven more days. Seven more days. Noah is called by Peter. We read the passage earlier, 2 Peter 2.5. Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. And although we never have a narrative that describes this for us, most interpreters have suggested that since he's called a preacher of righteousness, that Noah went out and did some preaching. And I could imagine that even in those last seven days before the flood came, that Noah perhaps was preaching. Maybe he just had a little chapel with his own family and he was preaching and maybe he preached to those who passed by. The ark must have been a spectacle. I wonder how men must have scoffed or turned away in indifference in those days. Finally, we need to learn with fear and trembling that there are times when God's long-suffering comes to a close. There are times when His extended hand to us is returned. There are times when His patience is ended and judgment comes. There, There came a time... As we read here in Genesis 7 and verse 16, that the Lord shut the door. The Lord shut the door of the ark. 
in shutting Noah in, God was also shutting others out. Not too long ago, as I was preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, some of you remember we were in Matthew 25. And in Matthew 25, Christ tells a parable that we sometimes call the parable of the the wise and foolish virgins or the wise and foolish maids. And in this parable, Christ says there were these ten women and five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. And they were waiting for the bridegroom to come. They were waiting for a wedding party. But five of them didn't take the time to be prepared. They, They brought... Uh, their lamps, but they didn't have oil in them. And five were wise. They were prepared. They were ready. And the five who were foolish, when their oil ran out, they went to get more. While they were gone, the bridegroom came and they weren't ready. And they came and they came to the wedding hall. And we read in Matthew twenty-five ten that Christ said, and the door was shut. And the door was shut. And those women who hadn't been prepared, who hadn't been ready, they cried out, Lord, Lord, open to us. And Christ says that the bridegroom answered back, Matthew 25, 12, I know you not. Dear friends, It's a sober thing to consider. There come times when the door is shut. Last sermons are heard. Do you ever think about that? This might be the last time we worship together. This might be the last sermon you ever hear. This might be the last sermon I ever preach. Last invitations are extended. Last calls are made. Today the door is open. But soon it will be shut. When we breathe our last. Our Christ comes in glory. Will we enter that ark. Before the end. Before the flood of death itself should come upon us. I pray that we would. Amen? Let me about you stand together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thee thanks for thy word and for this historical record of that which took place which also has in it a spiritual lesson. We give you thanks for the historical truth of Scripture and for the spiritual truth of Scripture. Help us to, to learn. Help us as we will continue and uh, as thou wilt in future Sundays to meditate upon this book and the further accounts that are to come. Let us gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.